Well, hello, friend. Hi, Henry. How are you? Hey, Margaret. How are you? Well, I was wondering, did you ever watch Knight Rider growing up? Yeah, it was my favorite show as a kid. And so when this episode started and and the Knight Rider references in the show, it kind of took me back a little bit and made me think like, wow, when I was a little kid watching Knight Rider, would I ever imagine that I'd be uh, listening to the music like 30, 30 plus years later, living my life that I'm living? It's kind of crazy. It was kind of crazy hearing the Knight Rider theme for the opening sequence. It was so familiar. And yet, I don't think I've heard that in a long time. I wasn't a huge Knight Rider fan, but it did kind of make me unusually nostalgic, which I'm generally not. And I thought Leon made a good point. Knight Rider was ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think he could talk to his watch, right? Like, if you think about what a Tesla can do... um, and, uh, you know, imagine it pairing with Apple Watch, like, okay, it's very similar to Knight Rider. But then is it a matter of prescience or is it a matter of the fans of the show getting older and then taking their knowledge of technology and trying to make what they imagined as a child actual reality? Oh, I hear you. There's definitely a, maybe a little bit of both, uh, you know, but one thing I know, and that is don't ever hassle the Hoff. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he was huge. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming that you're referring to his popularity. I was. But, uh, Bing. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Knight Rider was my favorite show growing up. Uh, and I remember once when I was a kid, they started uh, filming the show at a house down the street. And it was a really big deal. Like all the kids at school were talking about it. And the kids who lived uh, in the house or on the street where the show was being filmed that week were kind of mini celebrities because they could talk about how they had seen the car and, uh, you know, seen Hasselhoff. And yeah, they used to film parts of the show near where I used to live also. Um, So a lot of the scenes in the show are places that I'm kind of familiar with. That's pretty cool. I I only became really familiar with Knight Rider, you know, obviously a little bit with the shows. And then I, I was an exchange student in Germany and he was like, the biggest celebrity walking at the time. So that was kind of funny. I think even now he's still pretty popular over there. Him and his mullet. (laughs) Like you said, don't hassle the Hoff. (laughs) But of course, everybody who's here tuning in, Henry and I are here to talk about the seventh episode of Mr. Robot, essentially called Frederick and Tanya. In addition to all the Knight Rider and Frasier references, Henry, what did you think of this episode? I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, To me, it was a nice payoff for a lot of the setup that we've been having in the show, both through season two and season three we kind of start to see a lot of the execution of the pieces start to come together. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and then in terms of the title, Frederick plus Tanya dot CHK, and I might as well get this part out of the way, a CHK file 
is a, a file associated with Microsoft Windows where fragments of files are saved. And you can only generally access them if you do stuff like use a scan disk uh, program to find discarded or hidden files. And uh, I thought that was a little bit of fun Googling I did before that. But in general, I, I really like this episode a lot too. I mean, I was starting to wonder what happened to Mobley and Trenton before this episode. Now I, I regret wondering. <laughs> well, they're not going to just let all the character building and setup go to waste, right? And there was that uh, end where he walks up to them outside of Fry's and, and asks them a question where he, you wonder what's going to happen next that we kind of forgot about. At least I did. I completely forgot about the fact that Leon trekked all the way out to Phoenix to essentially encounter Mobley and Trenton, who are living under the names Frederick and Tanya, which maybe I watched too much of the Americans, but it sort of reminded me of those characters' fake names, uh, Philip and Elizabeth, just very proper names. But it was, it's true. I totally forgot that part. And we got to get more of a sense of Leon's personality as well. Yeah. And I thought about what it would be like to, you know, have someone who has this like aura of danger around you speaking to you about these things. Like, how could you, I just want to tell him to shut up. Right. But you can't because he's dangerous and he's got a knife or a gun, but he's just like rambling on and on and on and on. I think that would be the thing that would drive me crazy the most. I was thinking about that too from the couple of perspectives. For, first of all, yeah, it would have been totally nerve wracking. And also I, I feel like in some ways being in prison got inside Leon's head a little bit because, you know, he's, he had nothing to do but watch those sitcoms or shows and look after Elliot. So Frazier, you know, gets more butt than ashtrays and he's just obsessed with the synthetic world. And what does that say about him? And it makes him seem like kind of a psychopath that he's so detached. Or like a character out of a Tarantino film, right? It's kind of like how Travolta and uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction would kind of have these debates about things while they're standing in front of a guy ready to pull the trigger. Yeah. And in this case, Leon had already killed Mobley's roommate. He was quite dead. And he was really pretty much toying and playing with Mobley and Trenton in a lot of ways, like they were a cat and mouse game. Because you're right, it, it, it was monotonous and scary to have to sit through that at the same time. I did love the Knight Rider references. I did love the desert scenes. I thought that was a nice juxtaposition from what we usually see in the show. Well, they also kind of needed to kill time. Right, because if you think about the way that the the episode was arced, uh, you kind of had to have them be doing stuff until the payoff at the end. So, what is that going to look like? And they did a pretty good job of making it interesting. Uh, I like the semi escape scene, except for the fact that she was such an inept driver. I, that kind of annoyed me. That annoyed the heck out of me. In one way, I liked how they were making fun of the fact that people who live in East Coast cities often don't drive or ever learn how to drive. Like for me, for me, I didn't really learn how to drive till I spent a lot of time in California. But come on, she was in a giant open desert. You're, you mean to say Trenton couldn't steer the car? Yeah. And she's a nerd or a geek. Like I'm sure she's played a driving game a few times in her life, right? It's not the first time that she's ever sat behind a simulated wheel or a real wheel. So the fact that somehow she'd meander and crash into a rock not a moving object, a rock, a big one that's just there. 
I thought was pretty hard to believe. There are a few little things like that that made me no longer be able to suspend my disbelief that we'll encounter. However, in the meantime, we did see Elliot sort of reacting to the 71 E Corp buildings basically blowing up and he immediately goes to Krista and it's becoming more and more apparent that Krista is, is a central figure in this story somehow. Well, she's a holder of many secrets, right? So anyone who holds knowledge in the Mr. Robot universe is vulnerable because White Rose is starting to clear the board. Uh, so there's going to be this dramatic tension that exists for anyone who holds a piece of the larger puzzle. Even to the extent that Mr. Robot, when he finally appeared to her, he was fairly open and almost relying on Krista as a therapist in his own way. Krista was sort of doubting what Elliot was saying and even what Mr. Robot was trying to convince her of, although there had to be this nagging feeling in the back of her mind. Something was amiss. Well, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the the, the scene. I thought it made me want to see Elliot acting like Mr. Robot more because I, I, it would be interesting to see... Um, that kind of performance instead of Christian Slater. But I understand, uh, and I enjoy seeing him on screen. I I hear you. I enjoy seeing Christian Slater on screen, and I also think it's, it is interesting when Elliot is Elliot, but he's acting like Mr. Robot because it sort of gives you a different way in which to see Romney Malik act and, and embody that character or those characters. Uh, we did switch to Dom and Santiago. So, so Dom smells a rat at this point, I think. Yeah, she does. I mean, it's only a matter of time. She's not st stupid and her character is not portrayed as stupid. There's always an inside man uh, if there's a criminal conspiracy afoot of a significant scale. So she's at a certain point and ask herself who's dirty inside these walls. And it's not going to be long after that, that she turns her eyes towards her superior. They were arguing Dom and Santiago, that is Dom wanted to go after other people. She thinks that Tyrell is sort of a misleading answer. She says to Santiago, something's not adding up. And then he starts pulling rank on her just to intimidate her and use anger to stop her from pursuing a dangerous line of thinking. And in an age where we're talking a lot about workplace dynamics between people of the opposite sex, uh, we see a pretty clear example of how uh, power dynamics between genders plays out when there's a male in a position of power and a woman is subordinate and how oftentimes anger is used to silence women. I have had that used on me quite a bit in the business world, quite a bit anger to intimidate and silence. It's definitely something I was resonating with when I saw that scene. I like this, the phrase about how Tyrell was coincidental resurfacing, like there is no coincidental resurfacing that happens in Dom's book and Tyrell's attorney is sort of saying, you know, you can't, you can't come after my client for, for just suddenly appearing. It's all going to blow up soon. I think for Santiago, maybe even literally. Well, what do you think Tyrell's larger purpose is going forward? Do you think we're going to be seeing more of him and what role is going to play going forward in White Rose's plan? Well, I think he's supposed to just be the fall guy because it seems like Elliot has to, has to be protected at all costs. And, and so that's what he's supposed to do. And his love for his son, is, who's now somewhere in foster care, is probably meant to keep Terrell in place. 
Although I just don't think that would keep Terrell uh, under control as much as he probably loves his son. He seems like he's a man with not much more left to lose. Yeah. I mean, thinking about Terrell and the role he plays going forward, I don't know if he has more of a role to play or if his role has already been done in pointing the FBI to Trenton and Mobley uh, and making that connection because his attorney, I guess, negotiated an immunity deal. Um, so he's not he's not going to go to trial uh, and everything is going to be pinned on Trenton and Mobley. So after this, potentially, Terrell Willick is a free man minus a wife and uh, maybe the goal for him will be try to try to regain custody of his son. Yeah, I just think he would be such a terrible father. But yeah, his ego would want to have his son back and whatever paternal love he has. I mean, you know, we have to remember Terrell's a cold-blooded murderer, right? So the it's hard to feel sorry for him or attribute any sort of real true humanity in, in him. But he does seem to have a soft spot for his kid. They made that pretty clear. Well, I really don't want to see any awkward parenting scenes from Torrell in season three. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to see like a whole season three built around Torrell being awkward father. Like that would be painful. I, I agree. And so with that in mind, we did move on to Angela and Darlene. Wow. I have to say, I, I don't know if I could be very nice to Angela at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, wow, she's really crazy at this point, right? Like, uh, it, by the end of the episode, it's pretty much acknowledged that she's lost her marbles. Uh, and, you know, the things that she keeps saying about how everyone's okay makes you wonder what her view of reality is. So I think the theory I had about Angela a few weeks ago or something I mentioned is something I returned to after watching this episode, and that is... You know, I remember in season one, I think, where Angela was listening to the self-help tapes and she was really trying to forge an identity. And that made me think that she was very impressionable. I, I don't know about you, but living in California, you definitely meet people who sort of go on these, these um, you know, major self-improvement kicks, which is, which is a great thing, but sometimes they embrace it with sort of like a zealotry. And it seems that, especially as we saw what happened later on between Irving and Mr. Robot, it seems that White Rose was very good at spinning a story that Angela would have wanted to hear and believe to turn her into a zealot. He uh, manipulated her, basically, because uh, in some ways she was kind of gullible and susceptible to his charms. And he manipulated her into believing this time travel story, which I personally think he just spun that up just like they spun up uh, f society and the iranians being the, the behind f society for example and so here is one example uh, of something that i found happening to me repeatedly through the show where something that was happening kind of made me think about real world events um and you know what you're kind of alluding to or referring to is the ability to kind of warp reality through insistence and i saw this quote today on Twitter about uh, attributed to Manafort's daughter talking about her father and about how he can just basically keep saying the same lie over and over and over until you, he gets people to start questioning their view of reality. Um, and so I think the article is titled, entitled like the sky is green. Um, 
but this is kind of going on also with uh, the current administration where uh, the press secretary will come out and insist that what we plainly saw or heard was in fact not what we saw and heard. You know, with Angela and Darlene, we learned there are almost 3,000 dead. And then Santiago definitely does not miss his opportunity to threaten Wellick and just completely break him down. I just thought it was awfully brave of Santiago. I mean, just turning off the camera in the FBI, I would be like, well, there are probably a million other cameras and bugs in this room, but maybe not. <laughs> and I think it can it can be excused. Like if they go back and look at the record, it'd be like, oh, I was going to tell him that his wife and child died, you know, wife died. I wanted to give him a moment of privacy. You know, that he's a cooperating witness. I don't think you're going to get in too much trouble for something like that. Um, if that's a story you're going to try to spin. Yeah. And then the conversation between Mobley and Trenton and Leon as they're in the car, well, as they're in the car watching Leon basically digging a grave for the roommate. And we, it was sort of a very comical scene, even though there was the, the feeling of impending death. So we found out that Mobley was scoring dates on J-Day and uh, Trenton was expertly lock picking to get herself out of that bind. And they were playing, the music that was playing was Gangstar, Moment of Truth. So I thought that was a very good uh, song to accompany this scene. But this is the annoying scene where we start to see Trenton's capabilities start to break down. And I'm like, that's not true to life. Yeah. I mean, she picks the lock and they can't drive the car in the desert away from a rock. Like that was literally like that in the hill. Don't go towards the hill. Don't go towards the rock. <laughs> right? You could basically head in any other direction and you'll be fine. You could sort that shit out. But instead, <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I didn't like that. Like, but maybe, you know, the writers were tired. It was late. And that was the best thing you come up with for how to fill that time. Well, there were definitely a couple of things like that I saw later on in the story, which I'll, I'm just waiting to bring up. So, um, so Krista and, and met with her advisor and her attorney for advice and basically advice around HIPAA laws. I deal a lot with HIPAA laws with a lot of the stuff I make that has a, a healthcare component to it. Fortunately, I haven't had to deal with like hardcore medical records transfer. She had a right to consult with her attorney be because if she drops a dime on her patient, she is violating some law because she can only try to stop future behavior from what I understand. Yeah. And uh, information that you disclose about your patients has certain consequences. You breach those uh, confidentiality requirements and you can have your license taken from you. Sure. The larger point is, well, you think that this guy may have done it and you might have doubts about that, but there's a lot of crazy people also claiming credit for the same thing. So how can you be sure that this is a guy? You should just honor your oath, play your role, and don't get too hung up on what may or may not have happened. And, you know, Krista's like, but I know Elliot, something is up with that. And something certainly was up as we saw Mr. Robot heading to see Irving. I, I thought choosing a Robert Plant song, that was such an unusual choice. Like Sam Esmail was licensing the music of his childhood. 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Good era for music. I don't understand why Mr. Robot went in there by himself. Like, he had to anticipate getting hit over the head, right? I mean, what do you think was going to happen? That they were just going to have a civilized discourse, shake hands, and go their merry way? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing we've seen about Mr. Robot and not Elliot's father, when we see flashback scenes of Elliot's father, he seems more mellow, but Mr. Robot uh, does not necessarily have the best impulse control, it seems. That is a good point. Yes, uh, he seems to be a character uh, very uh, prone to indulging his worst impulses. And then we cut to we cut to uh, Price and White Rose. And this is one of the scenes where I have to tell you, I know we have to talk about how Price was instructed by White Rose to hire his own replacement. And I have, a, I have some comments about their dialogue, but the background actors were distracting me so much in the scene. All of their animated talking and hand gestures. I was like, tell your background actors to calm down. I don't know if you saw that. Mm -mm. I was totally I was totally focused on uh, Price and White Rose. I didn't even notice the background. What did you think of that conversation? I thought it was great. Um, the kind of like uh, escalating steel in White Rose's voice and the the dropping of the facade and it basically came down to like I used you to t make a point, you know. And the point is I ask once and I expect things to be done. If I have to ask twice, that means you failed me. And this is a punishment for failure. Uh, this is a person who, like White Rose, his obsession with time. Time is unforgiving. It goes one second, it goes into the next. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness. It is a force of nature. And I think White Rose appreciates the clarity of that. And he's seeking to make a point. Yeah, I saw that. Something else I saw. So there's a little bit of a roundabout way to tell this. I read in the news yesterday, or actually today, that San Francisco is considering being one of the first cities to introduce dynamic parking meter pricing. So it changes depending on where you're parking, what time of the day you're parking, what day of the week, and it would be variable meter rates. Uh, I, yeah, I don't like that. Um, I mean, it's only a matter of time before the dynamic pricing model follows the person rather than waits for the person to interact with it, right? Um, this already happens to a certain extent with like Amazon and other e-commerce sites that fluctuate their pricing during the day. Uh, who's to say that that's not necessarily more targeted by the individual than by the time or the circumstance? Yeah, I think so too. And so people were saying a typical San Francisco thing, just another way to define the haves and the have nots. That sent me down the road because I wanted to come up with a snarky quip in response to all the critique of looking up quotes from Atlas Shrugged from Ayn Rand's book. It's been a long time since I read it. You and I both know that a lot of folks in Silicon Valley love Rand and love Atlas Shrugged. And I felt like the conversation between Price and White Rose was resonating with me a little bit in terms of the overall message of a book like Atlas Shrugged. White Rose had their own reasons for being petty and malicious and, as Philip Price said, sadistic. And it had nothing to do with anything that's happening among the, the little people, so to speak. They were involved in their own sort of world. And everything else be darned, sort of like Atlas shrugged. You know, what would you tell Atlas to do? I would just tell him to shrug in light of all the pain and burden that he carries for the world. And I was getting that strong vibe, too, that related to what Irving said later to Mr. Robot about how... Um, you know, the rich are still going to party <laughs> in the midst of chaos. Yeah, when elephants go to war, uh, all the other smaller creatures are the ones that ultimately suffer, right? And But the elephants don't notice. Like, they're just 
focusing on each other. And this is, seems to often be the case uh, if, when you look at European history and the battles and wars fought by various uh, royal families, uh, noble houses, and all the millions of lies, lives that were affected, what came down to jealousies and struggles between family members. So yeah, people dying for these petty rivalries or these struggles over or land or even more ephemeral things. And so when we saw Irving and Mr. Robot later on, uh, looking up at that party, Irving said in a very defeatist way, no matter how hard you try, this is the end result. Nothing can stop these shindigs. You think about that in the world that we live today and the increased separation between the rich and the poor and the growing gap in the 1%, 99% that's left and private armies, like they're talking about like the CIA subcontracting their private operations, their covert operations to a private contracting company. So then you have incredible military and covert power uh, in the hands of a private entity that can then be hired by other entities. That just seems like such a bad idea. But this is the kind of world we live in. It is the kind of world we live in, and it's becoming increasingly transparent. So we cut to, this is a big reveal for me personally, the next scene in this episode, not as much for the story, but we end up uh, at a taqueria in Phoenix where some folks are sitting around eating and uh, Frederick and Tanya, AKA Mobley and Trenton are recognized on this, on the television and the, the coworker is really concerned. And I just want to say, I was at that taqueria a few months ago myself. Really? Why? What took you to that taqueria? Well, I was at an astrobiology conference in Phoenix uh, last summer and I love tacos and I love all kinds of food like that. And so that taqueria was recommended to me and I rec I recognized it immediately in the little flower store across the parking lot. I, and, and the first thing I noticed was the tablecloth. I was like, wow, Mr. Robot does such a good job of making these restaurants look realistic. And I was like, that's the taqueria I was at in Phoenix. I know that I was there for sure. That's really cool. Uh, we started this episode off by me talking about how that happened with me and Knight Rider. And now you're relating your own experience to Mr. Robot. That's cool. I know. I thought that was pretty neat too. And so, of course, we, we get the punchline in the end for poor Trenton and Mobley, basically they're being set up for, uh, for having set, uh, established a, a pretty robust threat analysis for the S FAA's next gen IP system. And they would be targeting IPs throughout the, all, all of the U S with malware that would allow them to subvert national air traffic control systems. We know that that kind of hacking of airplanes and, and we've spoken about driverless cars are necessary. So they're being totally set up as patsies. Yeah. And the, you know, they're part of White Rose's plan to wipe, wipe the board. This is something that often comes to mind when I read news about uh, the various prominent Russian diplomats that were dying over the last year and a half. The thought of wiping the board came to mind then too. Yeah, White Rose, it's amazing. Like I was thinking about that too, the whole idea of wiping the board because I was like, well, White Rose probably could not have anticipated, you know, a year or however, when long ago season one took place in this world that Trenton and Mobley would have that precise role. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, they, 
Leon went all the way out to Phoenix to get them because they were sort of a loose end and then they were useful for the plot. But I don't think, I mean, how far ahead could White Rose have known that's what the intention was with those two? I don't think, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I'm not. I'm not quite sure uh, because we know that White Rose's plans changed at some point because his decision to go through with Phase Two, despite Price's concession, concession uh, had his subordinate questioning him, right? Um, and so his plan. It doesn't seem like he's necessarily wedded to a plan. He is making stuff up as he goes along. Yeah, I was thinking that too. That you know, they were convenient in Trenton and Mobley. And if they had to find other people to take that role, they would have. It just definitely seems like Elliot is untouchable, but everyone else just sort of even, uh, you know, can can um, get in trouble if they step wrong. And I used to think Angela was untouchable, but maybe she's not untouchable anymore. Well, sure. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Angela. I think uh, she's going to go through a, a, her period in the wilderness coming soon. Yeah, but it's true. They're trying to pin this whole hack and the, the explosions on the Iranians. They're trying to pin F society on the Iranians. We see how insidious all these world politics are, uh, you know, from behind the scenes, like from the vantage point of the puppet masters. What did you think of Grant, White Rose's assistant in general? He didn't speak English before, so I was noticing how good his English was uh, for such a short period of study. That's a good point. Yeah, that's true. His English is phenomenal. And he seemed to be sort of, in my opinion, a a zealot the way Angela was, at least in this scene, much more sort of a true believer. White Rose doesn't really strike me as a true believer. Well, he's the god, right? As far as I know, he's, he's sitting at the top. So God doesn't need to be a believer in himself. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so apparent. And that was another aspect of White Rose and Philip's interaction that sort of made me think of Atlas Shrugged a little bit in terms of their approach. And it becomes clear that even though Philip has acted like White Rose is equal, we we discover uh, he was an installer CEO. So installed by White Rose. And yeah, and this question, who is White Rose? Because he seems to be synonymous with China in, in the regards that people will say, oh, you got what you wanted. And he will speak of himself in terms of what he wanted. And it's in the news reported as China. So I, I wonder how vast his power really is. Yeah, same here. They sort of uh, play fast and loose with that a little bit in this show. Um, one minute he's the minister of, um, what is it, uh, finance? or industry or something, next minute he owns these companies, not that they can't co-mingle. I mean, we saw our own treasury secretary basically wrap himself in sheets of bills, right? Monetary bills (laughs) in those photo ops. So, and he uh, helped finance the Suicide Squad. Did you know that? Steve Mnuchin helped finance. I I think I read that somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Woohoo. So the death of Trenton Mobley was really tragic. I thought the shots of the FBI going through the house with their night vision goggles looked like a video game. That was 
pretty cool. And also the technology whereby Dom and the whole FBI room could observe the whole spot through multiple camera points. I thought that was pretty cool and high tech looking. Yeah. And it made me actually think about what the current state of the art must be if this has seeped its way into popular culture. Like that seems very impressive to us, but the same way that at a certain point aerospace that we saw on television was actually 10, 15, 20 years behind. A lot of the recent innovations I think center around uh, personal, uh, like personal arms, small arms, as well as automated stuff. And so I'm wondering like if the latest state of the art classified stuff doesn't even involve people. It's like small drones just going into places and killing people. Yeah, really small, undetectable drones. I mean, Boston Dynamics video of their latest robot, that video where the robot is so nimble and can and jump and go backwards. And that's just what they're showing to the public that's been done. Who knows what kind of technology happens behind the scenes in places like that and defense industry contractors. Sure. Or even AI stuff, you know, like if you could just imagine using AI to hack systems and to create political chaos, uh, and you were to, you know, put a lot of money behind that, what could happen in today's world and putting that under a classified project of sorts, like why wouldn't you want to ex- at least explore that type of technology if you were a great power? Um, and like vice versa, wouldn't you try to figure out how to stop those things or detect that AI was at work? This is These are things that need to be figured out, I think. Yeah, and you're right. Like this show really touches on the real life consequences of that when you see that you've got the likes of White Rose and Price basically manipulating all of these world events, you know, a false flag, you know, manipulate the currency for a false flag and all this, these kinds of things. And then you just start to look around you in 2017 and you just start to wonder. One starts to wonder. <laughs> and, I, and I was listening the other day to... Uh, some something on the news talking about how Trump is a big believer in conspiracy theories. Um, and it made me kind of think about, well, if he believes in conspiracy theories, what's his propensity to also spin his own? Um, and what sort of things might must be going on that we are not hearing anything about because they have to be good at keeping some secrets. And even, you know, the flood of bad media the administration is getting and the things that seem to come out that are really damaging, these are just things that they can't control, but they're trying very hard to control information. So what kinds of things are never seeing the light of day? And in terms of his signaling, current president's signaling, there's a great cognitive psychologist, I believe he's a cognitive psychologist who works out of Berkeley named George Lakoff. And he distributes this flyer. This is what is happening when the president tweets, testing an issue out with the public. He's misdirecting. He's framing the narrative. He's obviously trying to divert attention. And there are these conspiracy theorists who even look at his tweets and say, even some of the misspellings are sort of dog whistles or or signs to his community. I don't really think that's accurate, but we've seen a lot of that so-called dog whistling happening though. And, you know, the conspiracy theorists, uh, I've, I've known about Alex Jones. I mean, I, I don't like to talk too much about it, but I've known about that guy for a long time and they look for signs and everything. Once your brain gets like activated to start looking for patterns, we're predisposed for that. I think Margaret, I'm going to call it here. It's only a matter of time before we have the book of Trump that will contain all his tweeted wisdom. Um, <laughs> and it may be a thousand years from now, but people will read from the book of Trump. Uh, Cause I'm sure you've seen on social media, people talking about how there's a tweet, a Trump tweet for everything. Um, and it just strikes me that like, 
the book of Trump will have wisdom to speak to all occasions, you know? <laughs> I love it. So which would you choose? Amazon Alexa versus Google Home? Uh, I would go with Amazon Alexa just because I don't have a lot of trust in Google Home at this point. There was that whole... Google just this year has not really done well in the hardware category. They launched the Pixel 2, which had numerous problems with its screen. They tried to launch the Google Mini uh, Home, and that had an issue because the button that allowed for recording would somehow inadvertently get held down. Um, so it would start, but it didn't wouldn't show off the indicator light. And they sent this off to journalists. And so they were and ended up actually recording a lot of audio from the journalists like home or environment um, without permission. Oh. So and then the Google uh, buds that uh, have come out have been widely panned as uh, not very good. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> all those things kind of make me a little bit skeptical of Google this year. Wow. Well, with good reason. My choice between Amazon Alexa and Google Home Gosh, I, I was hoping I would disagree with you vehemently, but I agree with you. I would go with Amazon Alexa. I probably wouldn't go with either of them right now because I don't want a home assistant that's always on in my apartment. But I think the Alexa, first of all, I believe more people are making more things to do with Amazon Alexa. And even Mr. Robot has the daily five nine. Uh, skill, Amazon Alexa skill, which you can download. And so you can play sort of an alternate reality game. And so there's more things you could do with Alexa. And I believe it's better integrated with their ecosystem. Of course, you know, Amazon will probably own all of us. There will be a book of Amazon right along with the book of Trump. I don't call him by his regular name. Oh, the book of Bezos, you think? I think there already is a book of Bezos. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever interviewed at Amazon, but I was told it was really important to read his book and to be familiar with the concepts. Did you have one word to describe this episode? Uh, suspenseful. Yeah, that's a good one. I felt tragic because I felt like there was just a lot of unraveling of, of things and and a real, uh, real bleak aspect to this episode in terms of our lack of control over our lives. But yeah, um, um. <laughs> you know, I, I thought about it in terms of like, what's, what have I seen that it's where it's like the bad guys won, you know, it's like in a, you know, three act play where like after the second act, it seems really dark for our heroes and it looks like the bad guys have won. That's kind of what this episode felt like to me when it ended. So glad that we're doing this podcast. And thanks to all of our listeners for writing in at our Gmail account at the hello friend podcast at gmail.com. Please write us there on our Facebook page if there's anything you want to share. Well, thank you, Henry. It was really great chatting with you. Great chatting with you too, Margaret. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Introducing eCoin, a new currency for a new era. eCoin gives you access to unique member perks, exclusive content, and so much more. Visit us on the web today and join the future with eCoin.